I've deliberately, like David Cameron, started out needing a needing a wee. So <laughs> no, that was Tony sense. Blair. That was Tony Blair. No, it was Cameron. All of oh. my points are going to be incredibly urgent. <laughs> I thought it was a, a yeah a speaking technique. It is, yeah. No, it's an established yeah. thing. Like you, you go on needing a wee and you just rattle through it, just crack on. Do you want to go? We can. I've got enough time for you to go for a wee. I've just had one myself. I don't want to go for a wee. I want to be really urgent. Okay. But I, I, I don't know why I thought it was Tony Blair. Maybe it's because can you remember he had that? Was it a conference speech he had where he wore a light blue shirt? I thought you were going to say. Can you remember the the conference speech he gave where he had a light blue catheter? (laughs) A light blue catheter, which solved the problem immediately. But he he sweated greatly. If you could remember, it was it was like and kind of a an awkward. I I am wearing that colour today, so let's hope that I don't. A, need the loo, or B, sweat profusely. But because uh, I correlated those two things, because I think, well, he, he doesn't need to go to the loo then beforehand because he can just sweat it out. To be fair, that's if the you, answer. Yeah, if you sweat a lot, it does decrease your need to go to the toilet. That is true. As long as it comes out somehow. He was a very wise warmonger. <laughs> Porously, or indeed via a light blue catheter, you're fine. We really are short. We are really short on preamble content if this is what we've stooped to. This is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, trained by the BBC, and Rory Smith, trained by Cambridge professors, not Andy Hinchcliffe, who is currently in Portugal being trained by Joao. Is this the clearest indicator yet we've had of the world returning to something like normality? Chinch not being here because he's in Portugal? Do you do you think it's it's telling though that Chinch has gone to Portugal roughly on the same day as it as it emerged that we we're about to have an October fire break lockdown? That this what? is this is this is the <laughs> Chinch has seen Joao for the first time in two years and the last time in two years. Well, that he's had advance warning of this and is is getting in whilst he still can. I, I think a like... fire break is how you describe thirty minutes with Joao. But quite possibly. At what point do you think Joao? has to like reset his his programs for his clients because it's been two years like chinch will be in i mean and people won't have seen chinch he doesn't do a lot of off-camera stuff but he has ballooned in weight <laughs> what are you suggesting zhao is currently poking him with a stick in all the areas where he's added timber unnecessarily just imagine zhao tutting in porch i don't know how you tut in portuguese and what noise they make they might it might be a tsk, but just zhao looking disapprovingly at chinch and all his sort of doughy glory. Making him do laps. <laughs> yeah, run, is... run to the tree, vomit and run back again. Andrew Georgie will be my greatest creation. <laughs> he's, he's been immediately downgraded from advanced to intermediate yeah, in the yeah. Joao programme. <laughs> and you're, that, that involves laps around Withenshaw Park. It basically, vomit. <laughs> the, the Joao programme is usually like leg day, arm day, chest day, whatever. But now for Chinch, it's just gut day, gut day, gut day. <laughs> He's just put him in for the antenatal class. <laughs> <laughs> he's not really got fat chinch. He's, it's, we should make this clear. He remains a, as, as if he's been hewn from teak, does chinch. He's a remarkably solid individual. There's no dough about him at all. This is all slander. The, the food is, does anybody have any food they would like to share? Well, I, 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 it's not really food, but today in my part of the world, the day we're recording, is back to school day. I don't know if that's true in Manchester, Steve. Have the kids gone back? No, got them back last week. I'm already oh. eased, eased nicely back into something <laughs> resembling a routine. Caring about education just well, as much as everybody else. We we send them to school for four days a year in Yorkshire, <laughs> where they learn various forms of animal husbandry, and then they come home and are put to work immediately. The, and, um, and financial prudency. Animal husbandry, 
financial prudency and how to get minerals out of the drowned. They're the three, <laughs> the three vital lessons in Yorkshire. No, so Ed's gone to preschool today, sort of ha- wandered in quite happily, and I immediately went to my favoured coffee spot and just sat there for 10 minutes and just had a cup of coffee. Just, just the freedom of, of after six weeks of being imprisoned by a toddler, uh, I, am, I am free then to do adult things, like nothing exciting, but go and have a coffee. So that's what that was my food for the day. And it's also, ironically, why I need a wee. <laughs> the, uh, the food of the day is the freedom to have the food at any point in your day. Also, I um, won't be having lunch at midday, which is what I've been doing for the last six weeks. I'll be having lunch at an, a normal time, 12.30, 1 o'clock. <laughs> at lunchtime. Lunchtime, not... Tw- I mean, 12 o'clock is still the mo- middle of the morning. Toddlers are ridiculous. Uh, the football is, at this point, we'd normally ask Chinch. He is not here to answer, so I'm just going to tell you. We are talking about the future of women's football. No, not like that. The new season in England's WSL has been much heralded. The word landmark, for example, was used so often, it was almost as if it was a product placement for the Landmark Adventure Park in the Cairngorms. Uh, I haven't been. Looks amazing. The word landmark was chiefly associated with the match between Everton and Manchester City, which was shown on terrestrial network television on the opening weekend. The exposure and the finances that that television deal brings also also tugs along in its wake something else is the women's game following the model of the men's yes we're making comparisons but not those kind of comparisons because we don't subscribe to them and even if we did we're not stupid uh, that is all to come you can get in touch with the podcast of course at setpiecemenu at gmail.com you can find us on twitter facebook and youtube as well you can of course still enter the SPMPLPL until this friday if you're listening anywhere near contemporaneously and that <laughs> sharp intake of breath is reminded that rory has not yet completed his uh SPMPLPLPL entry the end of friday the 11th of September, Rory. The end of Friday, the 11th of September, is the deadline for you. And here comes the tapping of the computer as he manually does it, it during the podcast. Tinyurl. Tinyurl.com forward slash set piece menu. And Rory for you and others. Put the 20 Premier League teams in the order that you think that they will finish this season. Points are awarded based on your predictions proximity to their final position. Tinyurl.com forward slash set piece menu just drag them into the top 20 as you see fit tinyurl.com forward slash set piece menu you only have a short amount of time to get that completed Uh, in the meantime to the further ado on this week's podcast last week's pod on whether some players are bigger than the game took us along the path uh, to a potential us sports style free agency in soccer Uh, binyamin novetsky has emailed, Dear Eric Dickerson, Emmett Smith, Le'Veon Bell and Melvin Gordon, which to me makes perfect sense and to you two makes absolutely no sense. As an avid American SPM listener, I have been intending on writing an email of this sort for quite some time. I initially planned on forming it with a basis in Major League Baseball, but your recent discussion on NFL contracts made me realise that I was using the wrong American Sports League as the grounding for my ideas. In your discussion on the most recent episode of SPM, Rory mentioned and Hugh expounded upon the idea that this summer's transfer business might potentially be a catalyst for the transfer market becoming more like the NFL free agency scene. However, in your discussion of the ways in which Harry Kane has lost the PR war over his transfer transfer saga, I realised that there was a very, very significant aspect of the world of NFL contracts that you were missing. The dreaded holdout. And now we understand why those four running backs were in the preamble. Now, most NFL fans hate little more. Than, yes, we do. Four running backs that have held out in the past. It really right. it needs a little more explanation is, than that. Is, is it bad for a running back to hold out? Well, let's find out from Binyamin, shall we? Yeah. Would it be most- better if they, they held and give? but do it at the right time. That is, that is, as my understanding is that that is the ideal thing to do. That is the, that is the correct way to behave in okay. whatever sport, yeah. 
Okay. Uh, just, just, just be grateful, and there is a hint towards this later, but just be grateful that I don't have to talk about hold-ins, which are a current fad. Uh, most NFL fans hate little more than a holdout, or in short, when a player refuses to practice or play due to them being unhappy with the state of their contract. This is mostly due to the players feeling that they are underpaid, but it can also be due to them being unhappy with the very team that they are on. Fans hate this for rather straightforward reasons. They don't care so much how much a player is paid, but they do care about getting to see them perform at the highest level in a sporting contest that they adore to watch. While I certainly wish that holdouts were far less common in the American variant, the near total lack of holdouts in European football has always astounded me. For some reason, there is a deep, deep reticence among players to be seen as having considered to refuse to train, let alone miss a game itself. I'm sure there are a few historical examples of this occurring, but it seems remarkable to me that 2020 Messi or 2021 Kane never just said what NFL players say so frequently. I will not play until my demands are met. I can't be certain, but my sense is that such a statement would be viewed far more negatively than it is in the NFL. I should also note that the record of players who hold out tends to be, well, not exactly stellar. However, why is that the case? Why didn't Harry Kane force Daniel Levy's hand and say, sell me or else, because I'm done playing for Spurs? Why didn't Kylian Mbappe say, you might as well sell me, since I'm never playing a game for PSG again, regardless of what you do? What kept them from making that kind of statement, from threatening that kind of decisive action? I understand it is a radical thing to do, and I understand that it is extremely risky and very well might not pay off but isn't it worth a shot at least in extreme circumstances why would harry kane rather lose the pr war and be forced to stay at tottenham instead of losing the pr war but at the very least getting what he wants holdouts are dirty and scary and not always effective but they're certainly a powerful strategy that i don't understand the total absence of in your type of football they seem like too strong a tool to almost never be used at all admittedly and i'm sure hugh will agree with me here they are most certainly overused in the NFL. I mean, Harry Kane had to apologise because it seemed as though he'd skipped training, when in my mind he could have just as easily said, you're damn right I missed it, and I'll miss the next one too if you don't give me what I want. I just don't get it. Uh, thank you for your consistently phenomenal and insightful football content output, and don't worry, Rory, I already have an NYT subscription. Sincerely, Benjamin Novetsky of T-Neck, New Jersey, writing from Baltimore, Maryland. This is very specific. Uh, so that is Benjamin that's that's a really good point actually that i didn't realize that the holdout was such a sort of profound tradition in in the nfl kane reading between the lines kane clearly thought about it and then didn't have the nerve to follow through it does i wouldn't say there's a total absence of it it does happen players do refuse to train as you both know uh, and they will sometimes refuse to play uh, i would say that they probably don't do it for very long i can't remember one that went on for more than a week before either the club folded or the player folded. Why it is, 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 is probably a really good topic for a podcast. My, my immediate instinct off the top of my head is that there's an element, and I think we still, we see this in quite a lot of ways. Football, I think, still has a slight retain and transfer mentality from, you, bear, you know, bear, bear in mind that it's only since the, since the 60s that, play, that players at the end of their contracts were not considered to be the property of a team, that they weren't, compelled to sign extensions regardless of whether they wanted to that they that they weren't hidebound by the maximum wage obviously all of that has gone and now from the, you know on the out from the outside it looks like football's this sort of crazy free market this kind of monument to capitalism but i think to an extent there is a mentality of through kind of loyalty and fealty and and duty and industry and all that stuff but also there is a, a mentality of that that is such a taboo that you really have to be prepared to, it's the nuclear button, isn't it? Refusing to play, refusing to train. And I wonder whether that is a, is a hangover from the days where the players had no rights whatsoever, that there is 
or barely any rights whatsoever, that there is a a part of kind of the play of football's kind of intangible weird subconscious that makes that beyond the pale effectively because i i yeah i agree that's really a really good email the it is weird that it's it's not that's the player's ultimate leverage and it is weird that they use it so infrequently at, at the risk of having hugh school us on nfl in particular is there also an aspect of the the differences between the sports in the way that a player's role in the team is defined because to my very much layman's eye in NFL, in the main, you're talking about individuals with a very, very specific, finely tuned skill set at which they are absolutely elite in terms of what they do. And finding a replacement for them at that level, I would imagine is incredibly difficult once they've established that they are one of the, if not the leading exponent at that. Whereas there's a little bit more fluidity in soccer in terms of tactics and approach. And although Harry Kane, in terms of being an English goal-scoring number nine, is currently without equal, it would be perhaps easier for Tottenham to say, huh, OK, don't worry about it. Go and rot in the reserves. We're not going to pay you whilst you're refusing to play. Your value is going to diminish. We are absolutely intent in holding you to your contract. And in three years' time, having not scored any goals for three years, you're, you're nowhere near going to be able to command the kind of fee and role within the sort of team that you want. I will hold my hands up and allow Hugh to now correct me. No, no the principle is the same. The principle is if, if you are only going to hold out if you believe that that is of value, i.e. you are of enough value to that team that you holding out provides them with a problem. If you want to have a better contract, it's often because there has been a contract level set by an, uh, somebody who does your thing in another team. Um, but sometimes it's just simply that you have you, you've signed, signed a long term contract and you want better terms because your, your ability has progressed and you, you've got more of a significance to the team. But again, yeah. you will only do it. Well, you will only do it to any great success if you have a role in that team, which is of value to that team which is interesting why the running backs are mentioned here by Benjamin because if you are a star running back you do have or at least certainly in the the era of at least a couple of those two Eric Dickerson and Emmett Smith where running backs were the stars of the game so so with along with quarterbacks I should say just to kind of complete my point then would it be easier for Tottenham to adapt to life without Harry Kane even if they didn't have a like-for-like replacement than it would be for Emmett Smith's team to continue without him. Emmett Smith's team being, I believe, the Tulsa Tornadoes. <laughs> At who, one time. But, an excellent, you know, an excellent Who knows? Uh, who knows? No, he, he was the, the Cowboys running back during their uh, stellar uh, dynasty at the beginning of the 90s. But, but I, I think that the, the two are the same. I think you could right. say that there is enough value that Harry Kane has to Spurs that Emmett Smith would have had to the Dallas Cowboys. Don't remember that. Don't remember. I, w- I would have been in my early teens and not following quite as much. But for example, if you take this is, a, this is a long walk to proving that Benjamin is right. Then <laughs> yes, no, absolutely, Benjamin is right, and it is a fascinating point. I would have brought it up last night, uh, last night, last uh, last week, if I'd uh, had uh, prescience. Le'Veon Bell, for example, um, held out at the Pittsburgh Steelers for a whole season because they didn't pay him what he wanted. So that. That was a a player who felt like he had enough value. As it turned out, it was a poor decision because he then left the Steelers, joined the Jets and been rubbish ever since. But Melvin Gordon, who held out the Chargers, was nowhere near considered to be as good a prospect or a talent as Le'Veon Bell. And uh, it didn't work out for him either. So sometimes it does. I mean, Eric Dixon and Herbert Smith are two of the greatest five running backs in the history of the game. At the risk of making this an NFL podcast, the 
is there the tradition in, in the States, and I, I don't know whether this is true across across MLB and basketball as well, of like the contract extension. It seems to me that in football, soccer, there is a much greater willingness on the part of the clubs to say, all right, do you know what? You want a new contract. You probably are worth a, a little bit more, so we will pay you more regardless of, of the player having any leverage. You think about all those players who suddenly signed, Liverpool have done a raft of them this summer, you know, the contracts that weren't up at any point in the near future and Liverpool are trying to band on an extra 50, 60 grand to six to seven players a week just to keep them, just to stave off the possibility that in, a, that in a year or two's time, they would have a bit of leverage in their own contract negotiations. Does that happen in the US? Is that is that one of the difference? Is there a structural difference in the way the sports are run that the aim for football is very much to keep the core of it. If you've got good players, you keep them happy. Whereas in, in American sports, with my very, very low knowledge of it, there seems to be, an, a, the basic belief seems to be, you have signed this contract. And at the end of that contract, we'll talk about a new contract if we want to give you one. Again, it depends on the value of that player. They will earn early re, uh, uh, extensions or new contracts if they are of significant value to the team. But the structural difference is the thing that very much governs this whole thing, and that's the salary cap. So if you are Liverpool in an American uh, franchise situation, you probably can't re-sign all those top players because you can't fit those new contracts into a salary cap whilst also retaining enough players to actually have a roster. So, so you're I saying think that in, the difference. in American sport, there's some sort of competitive balance. I wonder if, that's, wonder if that might be, a good, might be a good idea in Europe. The worst thing you've done. The worst thing you've done there, Rory, is to give Hugh the opportunity to prove he knows something. Oh, it's disgusting, isn't it? It's nauseating. In fact, nauseating. Once in the proverbial blue moon. Also on this, Ollie Wicken writes this: "Dear Awesome Foursome, love the pod, but slightly disillusioned about football by your discussion on SPM two four six. Don't worry, it's not you. As an old school idealist, I'm easily disillusioned about football. I'm someone who, like Danny Blanchflower, wants to believe that the game is about glory. Despite the fact that I saw this very slogan at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium last weekend while I was watching a game that had been moved to two p.m. on a Sunday because of the precedence of a playoff game for something called the Europa Conference League. As an idealist, I." fervently hope that players share my belief about glory, but your discussion framed players' motivations as almost exclusively about money. When Steve spoke about football as wanting to stand a chance of winning something, it was in the context of their being devalued if they failed to win something. This is what disillusioned me. Standing a chance of winning feels like something a low bar, something of a low bar for an elite player in my book. Worse, the prioritisation of financial considerations framed your entire debate. The unchallenged assumption was that footballers are financial assets for themselves and for clubs and that the point of football is financial gain. Personally, I yearn for a world in which players with agency and power would, if they could, choose a club with the sole objective of winning trophies. Imagine if the best players in the world got together and decided to play for the same team. What if Messi, Neymar and Bappe not only stayed in the same team, but were joined by Ronaldo and Harry Kane? Imagine they'd win everything going. If such players are truly bigger than the game, they could pull their talents and exploit PSG's financial resources, not for their own personal wealth, but for sporting glory. That would be proper player power in service of why sport exists. Obviously, I prefer Messi, Neymar, Mbappe, Ronaldo and Kane to choose to lead West Didsbury and Chalton to Champions League glory. But I'd happily accept the substantial depletion of a petrodollar nation state's finances for the sake of sporting idealism. Glad to get this off my chest. Thanks for so many inspiring discussions over the last few years. Ollie Wicken. But the problem there isn't that the players are prioritising money. It's that money and success have started to go hand in hand. That you, you have, if you want to win something, you have to go to the team that can pay the most is the team that can pay the most is the one that will have all the other good players on it. So if you're a footballer who's, and I think this is probably true of Messi more than anybody, you're kind of thinking about your legacy to an extent. You're thinking, right, how many shiny pots and pans will I be able to to look at in my trophy cabinet when I retire? 
you you will he there will have been a street in Messi thinking where would I really love to play football would I you know maybe maybe in Rosario for Newell's old boys maybe you know I'd want to play for Manchester United maybe I'd want to play for for AC Milan Messi will have a street of romanticism within him and he will have be he will be aware that that he could have his pick of teams but if he wants to be sure of winning something even more so than at Man United you can't be sure if you're at Manchester United that you're going to win the Premier League and and have a really good crack at the Champions League you'd you'd be you know you'd be it, throw Messi into that team you'd, you'd have a decent chance but it wouldn't be a sort of surefire thing whereas at PSG, he he's pretty sure he'll win leader, he, and he'll be he can be pretty sure he'll make the, the semi-finals of the Champions League. Because um, I think they've done that the last two years, haven't they? PSG, the last two competitions they made the semi-finals. So he goes there, and it just so happens that that is the reason that they have obtained that status is just they spend the most money on players. That's it's the problem is not the players prioritizing money; it's money guaranteeing success. And if football wants to change that, and I'm as much of an old school romantic as, as anybody. Um, or an old school nostalgic romantic as anybody, then the way football has to deal with that is by finding a way of leveling the playing field so that more teams can either so that more teams can offer more money or that a few teams can have to offer less. Uh, and finally, from John Kaur, who writes from Australia, kangaroo, koala, kookaburra, and wombat. I was appalled by even the suggestion that there had been any negative views of SPM merch, and even more appalled that anyone felt compelled to ventilate those views on the podcast. I am of the totally opposite view. In fact, at my first wearing of my newly acquired squirrel t-shirt to the Comedy Lounge here in Perth, I was called on stage by the brilliant stand-up comedian Janelle Koenig, who proceeded to provocatively serenade me and my t-shirt, which she referred to as a rodent shirt. The crowd went wild. My first wearing of my four buffalo shirt was at the Bledisloe Cup rugby test between Australia and New Zealand. I have sent a photo to SPM. John, you have. It's splendid. I, I would prefer it if the merch was, was forbidden from being worn at rugby events. <laughs> <laughs> Listening public, ignore Rory for one of the first times I'd imagine in your history. Uh, the next outing of my rodent shirt will be the Aussie Rules Grand Final to be held in Perth this month for the first time ever. I hope that this is that all right, Rory? Are you happy with Aussie yeah, I'd Rules? Yeah, I quite like Aussie Rules. Okay. Uh, because what, more violent or? No, it's just, fewer clothing? Such, it's just such a simple sport. <laughs> he says kind of patronizingly. I hope, continues John, that this attendance of significant events in merch will snowball in a manner parallel to one of the great adventures of the 1980s when a group of my friends traveled to Europe. Prior to leaving, they kidnapped a garden gnome from the garden of some elderly neighbors. They proceeded to photograph the traveling gnome at every international tourist attraction they visited. The gnome was passed on to other travelers who carried on the process, including trips to the USA and South America, while the original purloiners were performing more mundane Australian tasks, like working behind bars in London. Of course, all photos were mailed to the elderly couple, notated with stories of how much the gnome was enjoying his travels. After four years, my friends returned to Perth with the gnome, which they left on the doorstep of the original owners, together with a suitcase of souvenirs and gifts from all corners of Europe and the Americas. Nothing was ever said because the first rule of Gnome Club was that you don't talk of Gnome Club. Is that not the plot of Amelie? Oh, maybe, Am well, Amelie came after the 1980s, so... But did that... Are the, you suggesting that Amelie stole this idea in the same way that John's friends stole the gnome? Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, it does sound, for a start, like John's friends have committed a, a fairly major crime and should be punished. But, but it had such a nice ending. 
Is that, I'm sure that's the plot of Amelie. Did they, was Amelie actually about four Australian barmen? So, um, he, he suggests at the end, maybe the SPM merch can replicate these escapades. Keep up, keep up the good work. That's from John Cole. He's actually in Yanchep near Perth, Western Australia. Well, I'm very happy for tales of where the merch has been to be sent away. Not necessarily so enamoured with the idea that they would be passed on because that would reduce sales quite significantly if there was just one item of merch that did the rounds. But um, merch, if you're wondering, is at tpublic.com and just search for SPM or Seppi's menu. We should have a T-shirt that just says we are desperately trying to monetize this. <laughs> Put it on the list. Put it on the list. Correspondence of any kind to seppismenu at gmail.com. Now, uh, it has often been suggested to us that we spend some time talking about women's football here on Set Piece Menu, which as four men, we have assiduously avoided. What could go wrong, you ask? Almost everything we say. But seeing that casual misogynist Andy Hinchcliffe isn't with us this week, we've reduced the chances of offending by almost 100%. So... Actually, that being said, the facile debate of social media, which usually centres around a Daily Mail reader having a go at Alex Scott, is not one that will be taking place here. We'd rather have a conversation about the crossroads that the women's game has seemingly reached with an injection of both cash and cachet that has accompanied the new season of the Women's Super League in England. For a sport that is rightly determined to be considered as autonomous and not one constantly compared to the men's game, are they actually about to embark on a journey that was taken by the men when they went through the same thing. Given it is relatively nascent, should the women's professional game follow a different model or face a potential future disparity that money has helped create in the men's game? So we're asking today, it's a different game, but how different does it really want to be? Watch us now uh, walk over hot coals for the next uh, half an hour. But actually the point is that it is, this is not a competition conversation we are not talking about competitive differences or comparisons between no. men's and women's football because that is not something that has really any value so the point is is that we're talking about the structural comparison of women's football at this point rory compared to how men's football has been on a journey since say the early 90s just I after like, gnomes were stolen from western australia i like the fact you threw that to me because it was my idea to talk about it your fault and both you and steve were like mm, we can only get ourselves in trouble but i think we the the, the important thing with with this conversation is just to be grown up about it. And I think actually a lot of the time people aren't willing to be grown up when they talk about women's football, that there's, there's a lot of, of treading on eggshells, particularly from men who are supportive of it in the sense that, you know, the, 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 there's a, there's a group of people who feel the need every time anyone talks about women's football on, on Twitter or on the, or it's on the telly or whatever, who feel the need to shout, Oh, you know, it's not a proper sport. Nobody wants to watch that. They're, I don't know why they're all cockneys, but they are. Um, well, they're either cockneys or daily mail readers either way. You're happy but to, it's, to that is a, me. that is a big Venn diagram. Um, <laughs> I find it, I actually find it slightly odd how much attention they're given because who cares, who cares about what they think? They, they don't matter that it's, it will, it will be the same with all sorts of, of different kind of activities or different sports or different kind of cultural things where you have a core group of a tiny minority that is just determined to object to it even existing and and their their opinions are basically worthless and i find it slightly sad understandable to an extent but sad that that the conversation always seems to be well kind of attacking the dinosaurs well just just let them die out on their own is my my genuine view like you're not going to change their minds they that they, they, they are not presenting like a rational point of view you can't engage with it it is it, not, certainly on social media there is nothing more more frustrating than talking to someone who's clearly quite stupid just the, one of the great benefits of stupidity is that you don't know when you're wrong you are not clever enough to know when you are wrong and that i i find that defines quite a lot of the 
the bit of the debate about women's football that that we focus on the kind of you know isn't it awful that there is that there's all this negative reaction well yeah it it is awful that there's all that negative reaction but that negative reaction makes literally zero sense so condemn it occasionally obviously but basically ignore it they're not it's not like they're making a rational point that you have to engage with and try and there's an argument there's no argument there it's just i don't like this and and it's not dangerous misinformation that sometimes on social media you should be looking to ignore whether that's to do with covid or climate change etc is that and this is and and this is possibly going to be a bit of a theme about not comparing and contrasting as rory says one of the problems with those of whom we say look just ignore them is that they are constantly told we are ignoring you no don't even do because that just fuels it yeah. Because if it gets a response, anything that gets a response is going to be perpetuated. So the best thing to do if you're going to ignore something is to do just that, not to draw attention to this being something that we are ignoring going forward. That's that's fascinating because that's that's also the same. It's sometimes the political debate that, that takes place both sides of the Atlantic, but particularly in America where there is a right wing kind of media Hugh, ecosystem. Hugh, we're already talking about women's football, where, <laughs> where one of us is going to get into trouble for saying something that's slightly wrong. Don't bring in American politics. It was just a brief point to say that, 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 that people that rail against some of those opinions that are being trumpeted by that right-wing media ecosystem say don't highlight it and say this is awful because it, you, your likes or your retweets or your quote tweets, quote, quote retweets, are highlighting what is essentially yeah. something which, is, which could be, if they weren't, marginal. And that's the point that you're both making about this situation is that actually to say that you're outraged is to highlight something that would otherwise be ignored and perhaps not so much of an issue. Not necessarily that those views are to not be abhorred, but they, given the light of day, are given too much of a spotlight because they do not represent any sort, any sort of sensible thinking. But also it creates a false narrative where the 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 battle for women's women's football is to convince that loud probably quite misogynistic yeah i mean it, i don't know why i'm qualifying that misogynistic um outdated minority and it is it, it's loud and it i mean and that can distort it but it is a minority the, I, the, the vast majority of men's football fans aren't f- like naturally predisposed to hate women's football that's not it's not like a competition between the two it's for all that you're not meant to compare and contrast it's all football it's i know that i mean it's not even like it's rugby union rugby league where one is objectively good and one is objectively bad it's it's that 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 kind of opinion that i would never like or quote tweet because frankly that needs to stay in the underbelly of society but the the, the, they are the same game so the, the, it makes very little sense that if you really like football why would you be like oh my god this is women i hate women's football it's, i mean they're they're performing literally the same activity it's it's not like football and snooker do you know what i mean it's so it is it creates this 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 false narrative where what women's football has to do is convince the dinosaurs it doesn't it just forget, just ignore forget about the dinosaurs the more pressing thing is how does women's football reach like as, as is the case for every sport, male or female. And this is where men's football, I suppose, gets is a little bit different because men's football is this incredible cultural phenomenon in a way that no other basically no other sport is. But it's the same it's the same thing that tennis has to do or rugby has to do or Formula One has to do or whatever. Is how do you get more people to watch? 
And I think that is the, the the crucial thing for women's football. It's not don't it's not let's persuade the bigots. It's how do we make this as appealing as possible for as many people as possible, um, whether they like men's football or not. Although I imagine that the people who like men's football are probably a slightly easier demographic to to get at for women's football than people who don't like football in any form. That's going to be a tougher battle. Which uh, of who uh, no, the opinion of those people is the kind of opinion that you will get not highlighted, even though it is just as against men's football or all football yeah. as those men who say that they are against women's football. It's just because they come from a different part of society and articulated in a slightly different way that actually they aren't given the spotlight in the same way. Because I know loads well, of people say, I hate football, hate football, hate football, hate yeah. football, and just reject it out of hand regardless because of what it is and what it represents. So yeah, that happens too, but it's just that you, you ignore them because you've spent, spent so much time ignoring them. There's not there's not not a part of it that you feel like you need to, to build up so that you can knock it down. But also, where's the benefit in ignoring them? In, in not, sorry, not ignoring them. What, what, what does it do? If you've got someone who hates, I know, I also not, like, know lots of people who will tell you, like you'll say, people will say, what do you do for a job? And you say, I'm a football journalist. And they go, well, <laughs> I hate football. And you'll be like, well, great. I hate international finance, but I don't tell you. Do you know what I mean? The... Or, or I hate journalists. So there's some yeah, people that like have that, yeah. multiple reasons to dislike you, Rory. Which is very odd. Just most people aren't interested enough to be covered by journalists. Anyway, the, um, the, you do get a lot. You do, Maybe that's you do, why they hate you. You do get that. Impossibly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That sort of attitude. Because, also, they're big well, rugby union fans. you are ignoring them, as we've just discussed. <laughs> to be fair, that, the I hate journalists is a better response than, oh, you, you, should, you should cover me. No. No, I shouldn't. Not at all. Anyway, and I think this is the thing that I that, that over the last couple of years has really struck me struck me about women's football and genuinely concerns me. And it's where I think it is legitimate to to, to frame it together with men's football. Women's football is essentially a twenty first century sport. It is professionalising. It's growing in the twenty first century, and yet it has been structured along the same lines as a sport that was framed in the nineteenth century. That has happened, I think, because a lot of the people involved in football as a whole, for whichever gender, are not especially imaginative. And because there is a sort of a, a self-satisfaction within football, that, that sort of Pandlossian belief that this is, this is the best way it would be, this is the best of all possible worlds, this is exactly what we need it to be. And so what you have now is women's football growing along, basically along the same structure as men's football, with, with individual clubs that are attached to, to men's teams, in competitions that are mirror images of men's competitions in some way. The WSL is smaller than the Premier League, but the basic idea is the same. There's a Champions League. Um, there's a World Cup every four years, all that stuff. The club is it game, even an FA Cup and a League Cup? Yeah, an FA Cup and the Conti Cup, which is the League Cup. And I don't know whether that's the best thing for women's football, if I'm completely honest. And it's as I say that as a man, but more probably, I hope, more relevantly as someone who likes football and who... Gen generally, you know, wants football to grow and be popular and be good. And the, the risk of it is that there are lots and lots of things that have gone into making men's football, elite men's football, particularly the Premier League and the Champions League, a sort of glo yeah, a global cultural phenomenon, the like of which we've possibly never seen before. But that doesn't mean it's perfect. And I think there is a risk that in in aping its structures, women's football will also develop a lot of its flaws. And that, I think, is a shame because that can be avoided. They did, of course, try summer football, which is would have been one of the big differences between tracking the men's game with the WSL... Uh, the spring the, series but yeah no well no no the spring series, oh, spring series was, brought it back in yeah the, the spring series was to bring it back in line with the winter season they had a summer wsl season 
They had a summer WSL season between 2011 and 2016. And for whatever reason, decided to switch back to winter. Well, I can, Whereas... I can, I can tell you the, the, the reason, because they were, they were struggling to both in a practical sense in terms of staffing for arenas and stadia, because mm-hmm. a lot of, lot of that was being shared by the men's clubs and also even just the, the bricks and mortar was being shared with the men's clubs. And so you're trying to try and get an already attentive audience to add on a little bit in terms of a women's game, maybe earlier on in the day to a men's game or kind of marrying up. People weren't thinking about football during the summer. Therefore, they weren't paying attention to women's football. But the idea was to marry them back up again, certainly from my own experiences and conversations about when that changed back is that it was much easier for a club. And this is the whole point that Rory's making yeah. about it being because the clubs are tethered to the men's clubs. Yeah. It was much easier for them from a marketing, a sales point of view, an awareness point of view, and also a practical point of view to have them married up again because you've got more eyeballs who you can get on your game because they're already paying attention to football. Which all makes all sorts of practical sense, but it means that WSL is taking place within an already hugely competitive football market and in terms of exposure that surely has got to be more challenging than having it in some sort of isolation now I know that something which is always very impressive to me is how carefully they curate the the fixture calendar to make sure that they get those opportunities whether it's during international breaks or or when there, where there isn't a busy men's league programme and have some of their standout showpiece matches in those windows to, to try and draw attention to them. And that's exactly what you need to do to, to increase the exposure. But it, it does mean that you're having to manipulate the calendar in a way that cannot be ideal, because certainly in my experience of having covered WSL in the past for BT Sport is that you have this sudden clutch of games in quite close proximity and then weeks when there aren't any and in terms of keeping people engaged that doesn't feel like the best way to go because there's so much ebb and flow in terms of the opportunity to see the games like anything with football as we've seen as people coming back into stadiums after the pandemic, there's a certain rhythm to it, isn't there? There's a certain part of your routine. And you would imagine that for WSL to thrive in the UK, that there needs to be an element of routine about it. Just before you come in, Roy, because this is interesting, and you'll love me interrupting uh, in order to bring up cricket. But it's, it's the same issue that domestic cricket has, because they are tethered essentially to the international game, and they have to work their domestic programme around the priority that is the international fixtures, because there is just not enough time to be able to fit all the cricket games in back to back to back to have all the players available for all the fixtures. So the issue is the same, that they are essentially domestic cricket is tethered to a larger body, which is the international game. Um, If the women are attempting to mould themselves around in terms of what Steve was just saying, the men's game, they also have a bigger concern, which is dictating some of the things that prevent it from being, as, as you said, Steve, having being able to breathe, if you like, in a a structure that suggests routine for fans following the game. The, I think what this what this generally highlights is the 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 issue of the women's game being tethered to the men's. Mm. That that I think is is the is one of the fundamental issues. And the first the first manifestation of that, which we might as well come to, is the clubs. So the reason that 
it works, and this is this is something I'm genuinely torn on, that it works to have women's teams tethered to men's teams is because that then engenders an immediate sort of loyalty to that club. So you are basically saying, you know, this is Manchester United's women's women's team. If you support Manchester United, you should at least be following following this this the women's team as well. And that that makes perfect sense. It's a way of getting getting crowds in. It's a way of there'll be some sort of slightly wanky advertising term or marketing term for it. It's a sort of immediate brand loyalty or whatever. And that that makes genuine sense. But the issue is that as long as those the women's game is tethered to the men's in that way, by these these sort of specific bonds, and this sounds really brutal and I'm not for a minute advocating it, it will always be second fiddle, that the priority of those clubs will always be the men's team because the men's team is the thing that for the moment generates the most money. And as long as the women's teams are the second fiddle, the men's teams will always be the thing that generate the most money. You see that in terms of facilities. So yeah, they, they run the run the seasons. Steve's right, the, the WSL season does it has to fit around the men's season is a little bit more staccato, but they run the, you know, the the men's teams and the women's teams will be playing together on the same will be playing on the week on the same weekend. And other than certain specific fixtures, the women's team are relegated to a smaller stadium because the men's team are using the stadium. And the men's team have to use the stadium because they will be expecting 50,000 people. The women's team might get 15, 20,000, but the simple maths of it, the finance of it, mean you, you, you're not going to sell fewer, the, the clubs are not going to sell fewer tickets for a fixture out of some, there is a point at which they're, well, it's the price of it's the cost of those tickets as well, Rory. I think yeah. it's something that's, that, um, sorry to just interject, it's something that often gets lost in the conversation when you get encouraging attendances at, say, the Women's FA Cup final, which gets upwards of 40,000, 50,000 people uh, now uh, each season. Each season, All these games that have been played in, in the big stadium. And I was, uh, in fact, it was uh, two years ago today as we're recording, the, the first WSL Manchester derby, which was played at, at the Etihad. And there was, th- there was a record 30,000 crowd in there. But a majority of those tickets were handed out for free. So although that was great to see the stadium like that and to have the noise and the vibrancy that comes with it, it's not just about bums on seats. It's what each of those spectators is paying to be in attendance. And, and that aligns with what, what you are just saying. If, if you can sell a ticket for the men's game for 60 quid and you're talking about substantially less for the women's game, then, then that is another factor that is going to d- decide the venue at which those games is being played. The clubs are going to make an economic choice, not a moral one basically, at, at a certain point. And As it, Manchester United did for all those years that they didn't have a team. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of them would believe that simply having a women's team that is tethered to their men's team is a moral choice enough. Yes, well, that's become How clear. How far do they need to go beyond that? That has become clear with, with a lot of the, the, the noises you hear emanating from Manchester United, who arrived in the WSL with a big splash and signed Tobin Heath and Kristen Press, two, two big US internationals and have maybe have seen the investment dry up a little bit in the second series now that they're kind of in the second season now that they are kind of established and i i th- that's where it gets complicated as you understand why from a women's po- football point of view and look this is just three people all who, all of whom are men we don't deny that um talking about their perspective of the women's game it's not anti the women's game it's not it's not i'm i'm really conscious that we are men talking about the women's game we're not telling anybody what to do it's just these are issues that I think need that personally I think need exploring a little bit more and that nobody within the women's game seem in terms of the the authorities seem to be willing to to explore particularly you see why they want the attachment the tethering to the the men's teams because it brings that immediate black brand loyalty 
but at what point does that come at, come at the cost of the women's game be, being able to be autonomous? And you see that equally in a, in a broader structural level that too often, I think at kind of FIFA level, UEFA level, national association level, there are not enough people in the room for whom the women's game is the priority. There are lots of people in the room who want to grow the women's game, who, who believe in the women's game, who want to do the right thing, who, who are happy to see it grow and develop and, and breathe, but it's not their abiding priority. And I think that shines through. So what's the alternative? Do you say, actually, we can forge a path where we have a Manchester team and a Liverpool team, a, you know, a, a team that, that is not... Mm. Maybe the, the perhaps both of the the the, the major men's teams in the, in those cities pay into, but is effectively or help subsidise in some way, but is effectively an independent organisation. And they both play in purple. The, the problem they is that they would be bo- red. Yeah. They can't be blue. I mean, they they that... would both have to play in purple. That and is an issue. They, they'd be called a franchise, and then you're into all sorts of issues with how no, but, that rankles and the, with people. And the issue, I mean, that that's it's it's a nice idea in principle, but it comes back to the thing where the association with the men's clubs, even though in the long term might not be in the women's game's best interests, in the short term, surely the pros do outweigh the cons, the brand awareness, the the facilities, the you know training ground medical yeah that kind of thing the fact that it's good optics for for the clubs i, I think we you can you don't just you can look outside the wsl you look at what's happened in france with Lyon, who have dominated the women's game in europe for for, for so long up until last season in terms of not just french success in france but in the champions league as well because Lyon, as a club their owners decided it was good for them to be seen to be investing heavily in in a women's squad that that could be successful that that it was giving them some association with success when their men's team wasn't wasn't having any any so definitely that the, the pros outweigh the cons and, and I think another another thing that ties into that is that if you think even just from from the shirt look number number 7 for Manchester United yes is now linked once again visually to Cristiano Ronaldo but it doesn't do Ella Toon any harm to be wearing the same number seven on her back when she plays for Manchester United's women, that, that it all ties in with that recognition and that brand awareness, which in the short term is going to help grow the game. Because although the new TV deal is great for exposure, and there's certainly been an uptick in the money coming into the game, £10 million a season from, from Sky to WSL is, is, is great. It's progress and there's sponsorship tied into that as well. But I would imagine that the, the money being generated is still short of what these as separate entities would require to be able to run successfully season, season to season. So they, they, that, that link to the men's club is helping support in the short term and it's a required support. The, that brings me very neatly, Stephen, onto the other central issue that I think the tether into the men's game may not be helpful. So which page, Le- of, the script, which page of the script is it? Doing very well here. Le- Leon, a quite an interesting example that Leon, for a long time, like you say, Leon worked out pretty quickly that, that they could be really successful at women's football. And they've done it really well and they've driven the game a lot. That kind of super team, Galactico kind of image that Leon had for a long time, which is starting to be compete. You know, it's it set a bar for teams to compete with. It, 
it kind of it gave the the women's game this kind of super team to to aim at, and the the Leon PSG kind of rivalry for a long time was 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 the, the compelling story at the elite Euro, European level, um, and it's worked for Leon as well because they they are now synonymous, I think, with with excellence in a way that they wouldn't be if they didn't have a women's team. That Leon would be, you know, a kind of slightly faded big French club, whereas now it's kind of Leon's men are. A slightly, slightly faded big French club, but with an excellent record of, of youth development and stuff. But their women's team is right. Okay, this is a genuine force, and people within the women's game speak really kind of reverently about about Lyon and everything they've done. They've and also lots helped... of English players have benefited from going yeah, going over absolutely. there and being even if it's only just been for a season or two to to, to play alongside those superstar players. Oh. And, and they brought that back to, to WSL. England's national team has benefited, but but the level, of, the, the fact that it's taken PSG with their deep pockets time to get up to that level offers you a demonstration of the amount of investment that is required to put that kind of team together. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. So yeah, yeah, you're right. That PSG took a long time to reach to reach where Leon were, and I think the the point about Kind of Leon, the Leon effect spreading everywhere else is really important. That you talk to talking to players who spent time at Leon, and they will tell you. Even Americans will tell you that just playing with players of that quality during the week was incredibly beneficial for them. And that has now been spread out. You've got you know Lucy Bronze back at Man City, Izzy Christensen at, um, at Everton, players throughout the league who spent time at Leon. There is a degree of kind of fluidity in terms of who who constitutes Leon's all star squad. It surprises me that more of the... I did a piece on Everton last week before they got smashed by Man City, and which was great timing. The, you you but, picked them up as title contenders, didn't well, no, you, Ross? They, they, they are very open about where they want to go, Everton. And obviously, as I think as Izzy Christensen said, it wasn't, wasn't the greatest start, but I wouldn't necessarily rule them out of fulfilling their primary aim, which is to get into the Champions League this season, just because they lost to Man City. But that does highlight, and it was that result that made me suggest this topic, that does highlight a real problem. So I am surprised that more of that Premier League upper middle class group of teams, so Everton, Villa, Leicester, kind of have West Ham maybe, haven't thought, do you know what? For five million quid, we could build the best women's team in the world pretty easily. The highest paid player in women's football is Sam Kerr, who's on about 200 grand a year. The highest transfer fee in women's football is Peniel Harder, who signed from Wolfsburg to Chelsea for, I think, 250 grand, um, maybe 300 grand. These are tiny figures to, men, to, 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 the, to the teams that have women's, the men's teams that have women's, women's teams tethered to them. So if you're West Ham, there should be no reason why you don't think, right, do you know what, we can go and pluck the best, best players from Sweden, the best players from anyone in Germany who's not Wolfsburg, the best, the best players from anyone in France who aren't PSG and Lyon, best players from Spain and Italy who aren't at Juve and Barcelona and Atletico Madrid. And we can build a team that will pretty quickly challenge the, for the WSL title, gets into the Champions League, make us synonymous with success in the women's game in the way that Lyon are in, in France. That has not been damaging to Lyon's brand. There, is, there, is no comp, there are no complaints from... It's enhanced it. It's enhanced, it's enhanced it, it enormously. At a, at a timely moment, bearing yeah. in mind what Stephen and you said about the, the men's team. Well, bear in mind, they've also bought the team that used to be the Seattle Reign. So there's now, they are now the, the OL Reign. They've got a presence in the, in the NWSL in the States, which is where women's football is a massive market. It has been a brilliant, take away the morality, take away the, the issues of equality, pure business decision. What Leon have done has been really smart. There is no reason why Everton or West Ham couldn't do that. But Everton are the first team to have a go. And that they, you know, they've bought, brought in Aurora Galli, who's the first Italian to play in the WSL from Juventus. They've signed three players from Rosengard who are... Uh, 
kind of perennial Champions League team from Sweden. They've they've signed is it brought is he, is he Christiansen back? They've brought Tony Dudrun back. They they are having a go Everton and they deserve immense credit for that. It would be good for women's football if the Everton experiment worked. I think because there is a danger, and I think it's a severe danger that the as money flows into women's football from Sky, from the BBC, from increased sponsorship, that it is divvied up in the same way as money is in the men's, which is that. It is used by Chelsea and Manchester City and to an extent Arsenal to go and offer semi-professional teams or scarcely professional teams in Sweden, where there is a long, proud, long-standing tradition of, of women's football being extremely strong, relatively small amount, of, a small amount of money for all of their best players, which create, basically creates in the WSL a the same problem we have in the Premier League, that you have Chelsea and Man City and Arsenal, who are the big three, who are basically untouchable, as we saw when City went to Goodison Park and scored four against a team that, that are, in theory, rivals for a Champions League place um, and should be on paper as well. That is not something that it will be good for the women's game in the long run, just as it's not good for the men's game. We know in the men's game that competitive balance is the big problem facing everybody, even as though, even as the authorities do their best to avoid it. Competitive balance within leads and between leads has to be protected at all costs. So to me, there has to be a way that someone within the women's game says, hang on, it is brilliant that Chelsea and Man City have invested so heavily in their teams. That's great. Well done. You have to query why they're doing it and whether their motives in doing that are pure. They may be, who knows, but it's creditable either way. It helps to grow the game. Seeing, you know, Harder and Sam Kerr playing up front for Chelsea is brilliant. Is that what you need in the long run? And I would actually add as, a, as an addendum to that, because it's Chelsea and City, is that growing the game as much as you can? Or is it basically making women's football a sort of another line in a quest to dominate absolutely everything so that Man City at some point or Chelsea can say, or PSG can say, not only have we won the men's Premier League and the men's FA Cup and the men's Champions League, we've also won the women's Champions League and the women's Premier League and we are the dominant force in football. Would it not be healthier in the long run if it was Newcastle who were winning the women's, the, the WSL? Because then you might, you might turn Newcastle into a kind of hotbed of women's football in the same way as Leon has become a hotbed of women's football. You might be able to spread the game geographically a little bit more. I mean, two rather... gastronomic capitals of each country. Really. Well, exactly. But you, you might be able to have... But both famous for their nightlife. That's <laughs> different sorts of nightlife. Different sorts of nightlife. <laughs> but you might be able to have a situation where, where Newcastle is the driving force behind women's football and teams like Newcastle, West Ham, Everton, those sorts of teams can think about glory in the women's game, which makes going to the women's game a place where you're going to see high quality football and you might win a trophy. Your team might win a trophy. And I would say that that would be much more appealing than trying to uh, trying to get the same Man City and Chelsea fans who get to celebrate everything all the time to celebrate something else. A question, if I can, uh, on that point, Rory. If if you are saying that it will only cost, and again, arbitrary figure, but it's helpful as a starting point. If it'll cost £5 million for a club like Everton, West Ham or Newcastle to invest in their women's team to such an extent along the lines that have been set by Sam Kerr and Penilla Harder and their moves and their contracts at Chelsea. If it will only take that amount of money to be able to do that and they have either the foresight, the altruism or the business sense to be able to put that into place, would they 
put themselves in such a dominant position that they actually set up the same traps that you are saying that Manchester City and Chelsea may well do in the future. And all you're saying is that it's just a different group of clubs because the Manchester City and Chelsea thing is very much a problem with men's football because they are the dominant financial figures, uh, certainly in England, in men's football. But they weren't. Mm -hmm. They are now. So if that were to be married to the the women's game and you say well West Ham and 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 Everton and Newcastle were to do it and that they were to become the dominant clubs well that's just what Chelsea and Manchester City did in the men's game so even though you're you're advocating for that in a principle is that actually just the same thing dressed up in different clothes that's a good point yes it, you would end you end up maybe you end up with a dynasty either way which or means do you think that, that the others will fight to try think, and retain their control of it all that actually it will make some sort yeah, of competitive balance they they would do and also i wonder if, if a newcastle say did it that you might end up with with other teams of that level thinking do you know what, if they've done it leeds might think all right do you know what, we can put five million into this as well and we th then suddenly you obtain some sort of competitive balance by by virtue of the cost being relatively low that more teams feel as though they can do it whereas you know if everton want to challenge for a champions league place realistically in the men's game, it's going to cost them probably a quarter of a billion quid in transfer fees, which I mean, and maybe not even them, they, they've spent a load more than that and got nowhere near. So you, you, I wonder whether at this stage, whether you could have that competitive balance by the costs being relatively small, if women's teams are going to be, te going to be tethered to men's clubs. The alternative is to change the structure. And this is the main thing that I think is, is, is that goes unconsidered, that there is no reason why women's football has to have, for example, a national league or a transfer system, it could have a draft. There is absolutely no reason why women's football couldn't have said, you know what, if we want if we want as many teams as, as possible to have a chance at being successful in this competition, this relatively new competition that is growing all the time, that want that we want to attract more fans to, why don't we tell the clubs that there's a salary cap and a draft and that we centrally contract the players? So the WSL, all the clubs pay into the WSL and WSL2, you all pay a standing fee, that contracts the players, and you then have a draft to see who signs who, and the rest of it is dependent on the strength of your youth system. Why not have it that way so that you can you can say that actually, do you know what, this year Man City and Chelsea are dominant, but next year actually, do you know what, Aston Villa and Newcastle have recruited, really, they've done really well from the draft, they are going to stand a chance. It wouldn't necessarily have to be that, it wouldn't have to be a salary cap, it wouldn't have to be, Tarek Panjim, my colleague, got a theory that if the if the big strength of the women's game is the international game, why not make that the focus? Why does the women's World Cup have to be every four years? Who said? Who decided that? Who decided that the women's World Cup has to be follow the same schedule as the men's? It doesn't have to. You could do something. You could have an international league. You could do whatever you you can do, yeah. literally whatever you like. And it feels very much. It feels slightly not lazy. It feels well intentioned and logical in some ways to mimic the structures of the men's game. But I do wonder whether maybe there is a conversation that could be had to say, actually, do you know what, that that bit of it doesn't work for the women's game. Because do you know what, if we were designing the men's game now, we wouldn't do that. What you're talking about makes a lot of hypothetical sense and has a, a degree of idealism about it. And is that an interest, is that a an easy point to make from a position where you don't have to take the risks that would be associated with treading a different path because there is a degree of fragility about women's football still as it attempts to find its footing the the ambition is to be self-sustainable for clubs to get a return on on their investment and it would be an incredibly bold collection of administrative in 
administrators who or just Arsene Wenger I mean or just Arsene Wenger <laughs> who would say even with its imperfections we are we are not going to follow this established path because we know where that or can feel fairly confident about where that can lead to if you go completely off the reservation you are taking a massive risk and yeah. and and that women's football is currently in the process of a very steep recovery from having been marginalized for decades and it would be a massive gamble to put itself in a position where failure might lead to that happening again yeah i i, I take that point absolutely i don't I mean i don't think, i don't think that the gains that we're have been probably, made we're probably we're, we're probably beyond that point now uh, but it would it would still take it might still take yeah it would take a degree of extreme confidence to say right we are going to do something different from what we know does and can work. Yeah, I take that point completely. And I, again, I see why the women's football has done this way for all the reasons you've both outlined. The, you know, the fact that you have that immediate brand loyalty, the financial support that's necessary, the, the fact that that is the, the established path for football. So why, why on earth, if you were seeking equality, would you not just say, well, actually, do you know what? Yeah, that is, that is the definition of equality, that there is a you know, Man City team and a Man City men's team and a Man City women's team. And that that's all been massive progress to me I, th I don't think the gains that have been made are now losable i don't think if you suddenly change the way the transfer system works in women's football that people would walk away and it may well be that that it leads the game to flourish further but yeah you're right it is a risk and that that takes us back to the point that the, i think when the, a lot of these conversations are being had i'm not sure how many people in the room ultimately care and that's the problem i think that what they've done makes sense in a lot of ways and is not wrong but is also very much the path of least resistance it and, is and the, the, it is the obvious thing to do there has not been there are plenty of people out there within the women's game don't get me wrong who who advocate furiously for it who are ambitious and driven and idealistic and admirable but there's also a structure within football's hierarchy its organizational hierarchy that is does not reward big ideas that is very much kind of status quo driven and i think the problem is that the, that the the ide idealists who would like to grow the women, women's game are too often on the too often reliant on the buy-in of the second group of people which means you get this kind of path of, path of least resistance thing so i yeah it just strikes me that there is a chance for women's football to avoid a lot of the pitfalls that that men's football has fallen into and the you know the, the domination by a handful of rich clubs is probably the most obvious of those that it should it's not this was a landmark we tend to refer to what Hugh said, said at the start it was the start of the WSL is always its big kind of chance to make a statement the fact that Man City went and won 4-0 at Goodison I'm not convinced is the best sort of statement for the WSL and it would make me think okay hang on do we need to rethink how we do certain elements of this so that we can retain all the gains that we've made so far but also open up new pathways to explore in the future. And, and to, to finish where we started about the whole idea of not wanting to make comparisons and comparisons not having very much value, is there a the theoretical argument to be made that if you are indeed an autonomous sport or you have autonomy within the sport, that to say 
to split yourself or to untether yourself from the possible flourishing but at a cost path that you're on to retain some sort of autonomy structurally in that sense is very much on brand because it allows you to disassociate yourself from the men's game in a way that might be satisfying in a way that you're trying to encourage in other aspects of the game when you're talking about set blatter asking whether they should be wearing uh, smaller kits or the size of goals and facile things like that yeah. well that that's you know the security i suppose is is the other thing that that, uh, that comes into that conversation that the compare and contrasting is is really important and and i think mistakes are made on both sides of the discussion about this when i first covered women's football a few years ago I had a few some really interesting conversations with those who had followed it incredibly closely for years and the best piece of advice I got and it was from Jackie Oatley who is now uh, commentating on on WSL for Sky she's, she's everywhere Jackie Oatley can't move for Jackie Oatley these days and, and I'm not betraying her confidence because she has said the same thing in an interview which she's retweeted on her Twitter feed just today is that you cannot compare, you shouldn't compare women's football to men's when you are watching it. The ebbs and flows of the game, the tempo, the nuances, they're all very different. And that was a really useful piece of advice because she said you can't go into commentating on women's football in the same mindset as you take into a Premier League game. You almost need to treat it as a different sport. And I think that is a really healthy way to go about it, to to always keep a division between the two, because although they are the same sport, they are different versions of the same sport in that regard. And it always astonishes me that despite getting that excellent piece of advice from a strong advocate of the women's game, how many other advocates of the women's game actually fall into that trap themselves? The most recent example of which being Cristiano Ronaldo's record-breaking international goal that he scored this month. And suddenly a lot of people jumping about how, oh, he's not the top goal scorer in international football. Christine Sinclair is. Now, whilst that technically is correct, I don't think that helps bring together the two sides of the discussion because Christine Sinclair is not comparing what she's achieved to what Cristiano Ronaldo's doing. She's much more likely to be comparing herself to Abby Wambach, who's second in the list of international female goal scorers and certainly Cristiano Ronaldo I doubt is comparing what he's achieved in terms of goals for Portugal with what Christine Sinclair has done for Canada and and the problem that those who jump in on that and say no you need to you need to be clearer with your language and say that Cristiano Ronaldo is the top men's international goal scoring record holder is firstly when you're talking about Cristiano Ronaldo nobody really believes that you're talking about anything other than men's football and secondly what you're, you're not only bringing those trolls as we were discussing out of the woodwork to say oh no one cares or oh, it's women's football it's rubbish which is absolutely a ridiculous viewpoint but it it drags that back to the surface again and leads to this discussion where you are comparing and contrasting the standard at which christine sinclair has scored her international goals with what Cristiano Ronaldo has done. And look, they've both cashed in against weak opposition at times. But you don't want to linger too much in the butting of heads over who's had an easier time of it because it's unhealthy and it doesn't help anybody. And those 
very, very misogynistic football fans shouldn't compare and contrast. But I would encourage, from my own experience of having covered women's football, and I feel as an advocate for women's football, that those on that side of the discussion should perhaps try and avoid doing so as well, embrace the differences and help the sport grow from its position of being different to the men's rather than fueling those kind of battles, especially on social media, of, from which there is never going to be a resolution. Yes, and, 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 and as, a, as a broadcaster as well, Stephen, the, the choice of language is important. The clarification or the clarity of language is important. But I do often think that if you are talking about a man in the first half of the sentence, it is implicit that they are playing in the game for the gender that you have mentioned previously. I, I, like, I get it. I get the... There the, are the, occasions where it does need clarity. I must yeah. stress, there are occasions yeah. where it does need that. The, I, I get that there is a... The default masculine is a problem that by saying such and such is, I, to be fair, I don't know who's, who the record holder, cap holder for England in either gender is. Farrah Williams and Peter Shilton. Peter Shilton yeah. I, can, I, get, I get that in, in the sentence, Peter Shilton is the record international cap, cap holder for internationals for England, that the, the absence of a, of a qualifier reverts, means we are reverting to the default masculine. But generally, I think that it might, I don't know, Again, we, we're not here to explain, to tell people what they should and shouldn't do. But I, I do wonder whether we maybe don't need, on, in either case, it might just be easier if you just called it football and we just assume that you're talking about the gender that is clearly contained within the name. Um, at times it will be, I mean, it's, it's a really small thing. And, but I agree with Steve. I think that, that by, by sort of losing yourself in those battles with those people who don't want to be convinced and can't be convinced effectively, because they are, they're not taking a kind of rational position. They're taking an ideological position, which is bigoted and misogynistic, but is not going to respond to reason that, that it might be wasted breath for the people who are having the arguments effectively. Um, I don't think either one advances the cause of anything particularly um and that to an extent yeah there is there is a i mean it's not even the quality of opposition it's the frequency of, of games that that change the dynamics women's internationals have won a lot more caps on average i think certainly seems to be that way than men's internationals yes. and that that will be to do with the fact that the national teams play more games yeah. it doesn't mean that it's worth any less it just means the national teams play more games it's not really worth and that's why autonomy is absolutely yeah. crucial yeah you just have to accept them both as 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 individual disciplines, effectively, although they are the same, they are the same sport. I, 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 lo I lose myself a little bit because it, it looks to me an awful lot like they're all doing the same thing. They're all trying to score a goal with a ball. The the so they are the same. But how sport. big are those goals, Rory? And that's the real well, debate. No, the, 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 and that is this is now opening another can of worms. Obviously, there have been some really stupid suggestions made. Set Blatter's small shorts being the the absolute pinnacle of them. But you Chinch do want tried that and it didn't work. It didn't work. Didn't look good on him. I mean, certainly. he tried it in the eighties, so why it keeps coming up again? <laughs> the, well, you'd have thought retro, that, if anything. The, the, you'd have thought that, that that much Hinchcliffe skin would have put everyone off for a lifetime. But the things like that doesn't mean you couldn't mess about with the structure of the game. So you could think about things like game clocks, which is an idea that's been distrust in men's football. That I'm not saying it would work better in women's football. There's no reason for it to work any better in women's football. But if you were designing football now, 
for, for everybody, you wouldn't necessarily say we have to have 90 minutes where 35 minutes are spent waiting for throw-ins. You might say, well, we'll play for an hour. We'll have an hour's long, hour-long game clock and stop it after half an hour for half-time and then have a half an hour, second half of in-game action. I think the other thing that we should perhaps encourage when we're talking about the women's game is, is balance. Because there is a huge amount of promotional positivity still very much attached to the women's game. And I think in order to take more people along for the ride, at some point there is going to have to be that, that nuanced balance. It can't all just be about, wasn't this amazing? There might, as with the new TV deal for, for WSL, there will be more time to dwell upon the tact- tactics and the, the fine points of the game. Maybe it's good to also discuss some of the, the not so good stuff, to, to criticise some of the, the defending that, that led to the brilliant goal being scored. Because I, I think that's also, if there is going to be greater balance between men's and women's football, you were going to have to take fans of men's football along with you. I had a similar discussion with a colleague about the 100, the, the new version of cricket, for those that, that aren't aware, that we saw in England this summer, which was very much targeted at appealing to those who haven't previously been watchers of cricket, which is great. But as, as he's pointed out, you're going to have to take existing vans of cricket along with you as well. The new version of cricket is not simply going to survive on those who haven't previously enjoyed the game because the bulk of the watchers are still going to be those who have already embraced it. And I wonder whether that's true of women's football as well, that general football fans are going to have to start watching it and enjoying it and embracing it in large numbers if it is to enjoy the sustained growth that we've already seen from it. And that nuance is always part of the football discussion. And that should certainly be encouraged when we're, we're talking about the women's game, that it, it is okay to be critical of a bad performance. If England's women lose a game they should have won, it is okay for there to be negative headlines attached to that display in the same way as there would be the men's game. Otherwise, that equality is not going to be achieved. It's, Maybe it, not in exactly the same way that, uh, that, yeah, possibly, that, that yeah. happens in the men's game, particularly if you take uh, a recent example. Steve's right. It's elite sport. And, and yeah. the, it, there are times when the desire to, to promote and to advocate is is at odds with the fact that it's elite sport and that it, all elite sports people, it's not as bad as the Olympics, but that all elite sports people accept that they are being judged on their performances. I think, to be honest, there is this is a separate, this is definitely another podcast, but we, I do wonder whether the criticism that is so endemic to football has now gone too far and that we are constantly kind of seeking, Chinch does this a little bit as well, seeking to blame somebody every time a goal is scored rather than saying that was a good goal. Sometimes, sometimes teams score goals, that's what happens. And I think that, that that it might be that men's football has to change a little bit there as well. That we 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 expect too much of football, men's football, but women's football ultimately is elite sport, and that that brings with it huge benefits. But but also does yeah, you you don't get criticised if you play badly, and there's not there's maybe not enough of that at times in the desire because of the desire to to make sure that the, the growth that has has been so remarkable in the last like five ten years is maintained. The reason that Chinch needs to scapegoat somebody every time, particularly if it's a defender or indeed a left back, is uh, because with each one that he highlights from somebody else, it dilutes the blame that he feels 
that uh, he has for pretty much every goal that was scored against his team. So what, he's each, not here. He's not here. Each Can't. mistake committed in the concession of a Premier League goal reduces the percentage you... of those that Chinch is responsible for. Absolutely, Absolutely right. That's just maths. Um, and seeing that uh, Chinch is currently locked in a bicep curl with Joao, um, we don't have a soccer story today, but if you'd like to contribute either uh, in trying to prompt him into one or indeed you have one of your own, then don't forget, you can email us on uh, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Uh, I do hope just even mention nuance at the very end there we do attempt on this uh, this podcast to uh, inject nuance into pretty much every conversation we have it's sometimes a little a little bit more difficult particularly when Andy Hinchcliffe is uh, involved but hopefully you feel like there's been enough nuance in this conversation to make it uh, worthwhile given that we are three men talking about women's football. Uh, caveats over. No more caveats. Uh, you can buy the merch, of course, at tpublic.com. Just search for SPM or Set Piece Menu. And you've got just a couple more days if you're listening to this on Wednesday to enter the SPM PLPL at tinyurl.com forward slash Set Piece Menu. Rory has taken the opportunity over the course of this very, very interesting debate to ignore us at certain points and to submit his 20 I have teams. not. That is a lie. I have simply opened the tab <laughs> so that I remember to do it. Thank you, Rory, and everybody else. Tinyurl.com forward slash Set Piece Menu. Have until Friday. Friday the 11th, so Friday, the end of Friday to do that. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen and to Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece many for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Rory's wearing a jumper, a, mm. a new one that appears to have a degree of style about it. Yeah, I've, 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 had, I've spent many years um, only buying block colours, but I've now decided to express my personality through my clothes. It's a sunset. The sunset over the yeah. sea. We won't, also, be, we won't be seeing too many more of those in 2021. <laughs> no. It's also testament to the power of Instagram ads, which is how I now buy all of my clothes. Uh, just by sheer like repetition of the adverts on Instagram, you get all this stuff. This is quite nice quality. I've had several disappointing experiences. I don't know why I don't know why I keep doing it to myself. Yeah, it does look similar to something I've seen regularly on my Facebook feed. So yeah, uh, you, oh, Stephen, guilty of the same thing. You will have seen it many times on your Facebook feed, which re reassures me that our algorithms are similar. It looks better on you than it does the model. Ah, oh, you're a nice man. Oh, really? Well, so you know, get lots of I can't really see the shoulders. But... <laughs> That's all to do with my shoulders, though. That's, I mean, they, 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 this, is, this is not even... Even Joao would find, find, find it difficult. routine. Find it, both of them, yeah. Find it difficult to, um, to craft my shoulders. Because there's just nothing there. In fact, that's not true. I, I do carry a nearly four-year-old around on my shoulders literally constantly. I, so. I'm, st I'm genuinely... Uh, uh, my son has a lot of growing to do, and I'm already starting to feel the pain and the lactic acid of having to haul him around everywhere. It's, it's, think of it as resistance training, that they get slowly heavier and you keep on being able to lift them. You get stronger. That's how you end up with like dad arms. I never had dad arms before, but now I feel like I've got dad arms. Is he massively fat? Well, he's like three months old. He should not be heavy. That's a different argument. No, it's just it's the amount of time that you have. If if you have to carry anything of a certain weight for a period of time, consistently without being able to relax that position, the lactic acid builds in your thank your arms and your shoulders. Thank God, Chin, thank God, Chin, he would be appalled. He'd be really upset. Yeah. And, and let me warn you, it's not dad arms you've got to worry about when your uh, your children reach ten. It's dead arms.